We good back there? We go. And you might turn this one off. I think that's where our ringing's coming from. Four different little simple melodies all quoting a passage of scripture and then layered on top of each other uh, allow us as a church to preach the message before the message is preached. Beautiful song. We are in our, uh, <clears throat> our third session on focusing on the importance of groups in the life of the church. Uh, the series is titled Velcro because we want to stick together and not feel like we're stuck with one another. Uh, sometimes we feel stuck with each other, but the call is for us to stick together, to love one another. And today's message sets the foundation for what follows, Lord willing, next week as we look at the model that the New Testament church used to live life one anothering each other. And that's the focus of our message. Uh, I did check out the links. If you want to follow the interactive outline, you can see it on uh, this slide and the next. And uh, I encourage you to go to that. It's got some other resources there that you might not have otherwise. I want us to focus this morning on something very important. And so you're going to want to have your Bibles open to John 13, where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. We're focusing on a fundamental concept in the early church called one anothering. And I know you're probably not going to find that in your dictionary, but you're going to find it in your New Testament. Jesus only used the term one another in the Sermon on the Mount, but once he gets to John 13 and he washes the disciples' feet, it becomes the predominant message about how life is lived in the early church. Now, it's always interesting to me when I sit down with folks and do focus groups like we're doing this afternoon and next week and a couple of weeks, and folks will sometimes chew on me a little bit and say, I want to hear some sermons about first principles. And I know what they mean, but this is the most fundamental first principle lesson you're going to find anywhere in Scripture. There's not one more important than this. Maybe faith and Jesus are talked about more in the New Testament than one anothering, but nothing else. This is who God's people are, or at least who we're supposed to be. And this is how the world is supposed to know that we belong to Jesus. We'll see that as we journey along, but I want you to realize how important it is. At the end of uh, your pews, you probably noticed, uh, I don't think many of you have birds to use this to line your bird cage. This was passed out and done because it's a list of one another in passages. And I want you to be able to see them. I want you to fold them up, put them in your Bible in John 13, because I want you to know that this is not preacher talk. I'm not trying to convince you of something that uh, I made up, and this is my new fad, and this is some new thing we're kind of introducing into the church. It's a new thing. This is the heart of the matter. And one of the reasons we went ahead and read John 4 
7 through 12, after communion, is because that's the leverage of that passage. If God so loved us that he sent his son as a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice for our sins, then we should love one another like he has loved us. It's that leverage. So I hope you'll look through this because I want you to notice something over this next week as you look through these one another passages. How are you going to live out these passages in your life here as a, as a part of the pine tree family? Who are you one anothering? And can you one another everybody? Or are there certain groups that one anothering works best? Those are some things that I want you to be ready for. Well, let's uh, quit beating around the bush and let's get down to the heart of the matter. Jesus-centered life together as his disciples, right in the middle of something we do every week. He centers it in what he did on the night he was betrayed. When Paul talks about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, that's how he sets it up. On the night the Lord was betrayed, and then he tells the story of how communion was begun and how it was instituted as the Lord's Supper as it comes from the Passover feast. Last week, you did something very similar to what the early church did in their gatherings when they sat as family around a table and they told what the meaning of communion was to their children. It comes right out of the experience of Passover, where the father would explain to the children or the grandchildren or the great-grandchildren what the Passover meant. For Christians, our Passover is Jesus, and the supper is our invitation into that moment. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and he gave thanks. And he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, whenever you do this, whenever you drink it, you do it to remember me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. On the night he was betrayed, the eve of his death, have you been with someone precious to you in their last moments? If you have, you remember any little conversation. I remember my, my dad when I was 25 having to use a little wax tablet and would write things to me because he was on a ventilator. We talked for two or three hours slow, agonizing, precious, precious time. The thing that I remember, the thing that I tell my kids that my dad told me, I said, Dad, are you afraid of dying? And he said, not dying, just getting dead. Isn't that where we are? He said, know where I'm going. He wasn't afraid of dying. It was just the getting there. Jesus' words are precious. 
And the events that happen on that night for us as people are unforgettable and they're supposed to be unforgettable because God put the table in the middle of our assembly as his disciples. The early church celebrated the Lord's Supper on the day he rose from the dead. Not because it's a funeral time, but because it's the day of victory that changes what we look at in the supper. And it points us to celebrating until he comes. It's anticipatory. It's a special moment. So when Jesus instituted the things that we call the Lord's Supper, the things that gather around that table become important. The disciples arguing about who's going to be first. And you remember what Jesus did. He washed his disciples' feet. Jesus demonstrates and then demands that his disciples practice one anothering in love. And he stuck it right on the night he was betrayed, right up against the Last Supper. It's a core essence of this part of John that his disciples learn to love each other as he has loved them. What I don't want us to miss this morning is there are four principles that that the Lord's Supper brings to this call to one another each other, to this call to one anothering. So if your Bible is not yet open to John 13, I want to give you a minute because we're going to go through that. We're just going to kind of go through John 13, different parts. And I want you to notice what he says and how that adds fuel to the fire, the importance to learning to one another, each other in love. John 13, verse 1, it was just before the Passover. Jesus knew that his hour had come and the time had come for him to leave the world and go to his Father. There is that sense of close, soon. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. There's all sorts of ways to translate that phrase, depending on your translation. He showed them the full extent of his love. He showed them complete love. It's difficult to capture that sense in English. He showed them the full extent of his love. He loved them to the very max, to the very end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and he was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus puts this sense of one anothering, love one another as I have loved you. He puts it right in the middle of this last supper. And he does so because he wants us to understand the urgency, the essential urgency of loving one another. You don't know what's going to happen to each other. You know the fragility of life. You know that all that any of us gets is one lifetime, and none of us has control over how long or short that lifetime is. So if we love one another, we'd better do it while we have the moment. 
because the moment may not be there that long. Jesus wanted us to recognize there's a sense of urgency about our celebrating the supper and one-anothering each other. The second foundation that you see in the celebration of the supper is a foundation of love. Why in the world did Jesus do this? Having loved his own, he showed them the full extent of his love. He loved them to the very end. He loved them. He's the one that's about to die. He's the one that's about to be sacrificed. He knows what's ahead. He knows Judas is going to betray him. He knows Peter is going to deny him. He knows all the disciples are going to forsake him. He even talks about all of that. In a room where he is Lord and Master, and nobody has done the general welcome that a host would provide with a servant or a slave or a child, Jesus steps down and does what the slave would do. They were too busy bickering and arguing about who's most important. And he sweeps all that away. And he roots one anothering each other in a foundation and act of love. Jesus is about to leave the world and go to the Father and having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It's a foundation of love. The third principle that we see in Jesus placing one anothering in the context of the Last Supper, and for us, the Lord's Supper, is he gives his disciples an example of service. Now, he's about to do the cross, but he doesn't get to hang on the cross, exposed and ridiculed in front of the world, and say, guys, I'm doing this for you. I want you to be ready to do this for each other. So the Lord's Supper is kind of that M-I-N-I, that mini-cross event, where he humbles himself and he offers himself to them as an example of service. And when you read down through the passage in verse 12, he says, when he had finished washing their feet, he put his clothes back on and he returned to his place. Now, it's not just saying he went back to the head of the table. But it's saying he left the place of a slave and he returned to the place of Lord and Master. Do you understand what I've done for you, Jesus asked them? Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord and you've done so rightly because that's who I am. I'm your Lord and your Master, your teacher. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Jesus gives them an example of service. A fourth principle, an important principle to recognize, is a recognition of sinfulness. Everybody whose feet got washed were about to sin against Jesus. You can call it betray, you can call it deny, you can call it forsake. Those are words that wound when it happens to us, right? My friend let me down. He didn't stand with me. He forsook me in the moment of my struggle. She turned her back on me and didn't stand with me in my trials. 
forsake, deny, betray. My business partner, well, he scraped off some of our profits and hid it and embezzled it and betrayed me, his partner, and our employees. All of those are true, and those are the emotional terms. But bottom line, every one of those terms speak of sin. These men were about to sin against Jesus in gut-wrenching ways that would break the heart of the Savior of the world. He lets them know he knows their sin. He wasn't ignorant that one set of feet, as soon as the meal was done, were going to rush off to the high priest and betray him for 30 pieces of silver. He looks Peter in the eye, and he wasn't unaware that Peter, despite all his protest and his passion, you're not going to wash me, you're not going to wash my feet. Well, Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part of it. Well, wash me all over. He knew Peter didn't get it. And ten other sets of feet would run away. Dirty, stinking, toe-jammed feet walking in sandals across Judea. And he cleaned their feet knowing they were going to run away. You see, in this moment, in the Last Supper, in our reminder in the Lord's Supper, Jesus reminds us of the essence of life together in his family. He reminds us what life is about and what matters most to him as Lord and Savior. And it's one anothering. It's living for each other. And we do so, not lackadaisically, but with urgency. I don't know another Sunday that every person that's in here today will be here again. Satan may pull a heart away. Will you notice? Will you be there? Someone may be sick and not able to return. Another may be ready to move. Some may be upset because the preacher they knew is not here and they may go somewhere else or not go at all. So in the middle of all that, we recognize there's a sense of urgency. I'm a baby boomer. A navel gazer. One of those folks that thinks, if I feel it, then it, it's as good as doing it. And so baby boomers, we all get worked up and emotional, and we feel like if we've gotten emotional, we've accomplished it because we felt all ooey-gooey inside. But Jesus says, you're only blessed if you do it. It's not how you feel. And sometimes you may not even feel like doing it. Well, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want to act like I love somebody if I don't really love them. All right, let me pose a condition for you. And if you've had a little kid and lived through a couple of summers, you know exactly what I'm about to talk about. The kind way that a sweet sister many years ago described it was the summer discomfort. You know what the summer discomfort is? It's that bug that makes you sick. 
and the family gets that stomach virus, and you've got a four-month-old, and you got one of those baby monitors, and mom and dad have finally gotten the kids to sleep and gone off to the bathroom in separate ends of the house to be sick together at the same time at opposite ends of the house, and they finally get to bed. And they hear the baby throw up. And they look at each other. You know what I'm talking about. It's that it's your turn look. Well, darling, I feel wretched and I don't want to be a hypocrite because I don't feel like doing it. Well, I've already been up three times with him tonight. And I don't want to be a hypocrite either, so we'll just let him sleep in his vomit all night long. We would call that child abuse, right? What happens when it's not throw-up, but it's life crisis with a brother and sister? Are struggling with sin issue. There's an urgency because we come to the table and we share this bread and we are one body when we share this bread and we're making a commitment to live the life of Jesus and centered in the communion service is this reminder of urgency that we've got to serve each other. Uh, second, there's that foundation of love. We do it because we want to love like Jesus. We know love involves emotion, and it's better when there's rich emotion, but we also trust that the Holy Spirit provides the strength to love when the emotion is not there. Romans 5, 5 says the Holy Spirit pours God's love into our hearts. Galatians 5 says we have the fruit of the Spirit coming out within us, and the fruit of the Spirit is, and the very first one is, love. And all the rest flow out of that love. We have the power to act on that foundation of love. Third, we're saying it again, it's an example of service. Love serves. It's not a noun. I know we use it as a noun. But love means action. It's doing something. For God so loved the world that he felt all warm and fuzzy inside. No, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us first and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for sin. Service is something we do. And then the fourth, well... They don't like me. They've done bad things to me. So it's not my job to make sure they're okay. Or if they're going to sit on my side of the auditorium, I'm going to move or I'm going to leave this church. It blows my mind. First of all, you realize that the early church had an eldership over each city. So folks couldn't play this church hopping deal and get all upset at somebody at the other church and never reconcile. Just because they celebrate on another communion table on the other side of town doesn't mean that the table calls us back to love each other. 
If we only love the folks that are nice to us, we're just like the crooks and the criminals, Jesus said. But the table is a reminder that Jesus loved those that sinned against Him within the hour. The process had already begun with Judas. Before the night was over, Peter would deny Him three times. Before Peter had the chance to deny Him, they all forsook Him and ran away. And yet He served them. We don't get to opt out because those folks are sinners. Because guess what? So is the person we see in the mirror each morning. The essence of life together is one anothering. I'm not sure what the hanging G is on that slide. But maybe that hanging G will remind you how important it is. Because one anothering is the essence of life in Jesus' family. Try to find a subject single-spaced, just the main part of the verse that fills two pages. You think God's serious about it? He commanded it a bunch, and he placed it right in the middle of what we do. So the challenge for you and me is to get acquainted with the one another in passages. So I challenge you to take it home. I'm just going to pretend that all the thundering that's been going on in this sermon is amen and from heaven. So pay attention. But read through these. Check the ones you feel you do pretty well. Circle the ones you don't do so well. And work on the circles. I want you to think about the importance of how we do that. You know, we... We're in this box, and boy, this is a great day to be in a box that has a roof, isn't it? We're glad we're not at a tent meeting because it could blow away, and we're glad we're not in an open meeting or we'd all get well watered. And so it's good to have this box, but how are you going to one another the people in this box? Well, let's make it practical, all right? This always makes people nervous. Okay, now I want an honest... Everybody watch now. Everybody, I want an honest... How many of you sat here last week or the week before pretty close? I know you were in Africa. But, but you, I was here in spirit. You were here in spirit? Okay. How many of you have sat in this section the last couple of weeks? Okay, we've got a few interlopers, and we welcome you to this spiritual neighborhood. So when folks that normally sit here in this section don't show up, they say, well, I'm uh, unhappy with the way they treated Richie. Or I don't like how long that new preacher, or when is the search going to start? I'm going to go, it's your job because this is your spiritual neighborhood. You ever thought about it that way? Don't you hate the big city where folks don't know their neighbors? Well, this is East Texas. Get to know your... Oh, now wait a minute. I see what this section's thinking right here. You're thinking, those guys are not doing it very well. How many of you here know each other? How many of you sat in this place most of the time you come to church? Let's, some of you? Some of you are nodding. I'm not going to raise my hand, okay? If we went our, throughout the church, it's the same way. Let me tell you what's happened in several churches I've worked with. And it wasn't an elder in every case but a couple or two said 
well, I'm going to get the name of everybody that sits in my church neighborhood. And when I find out that they're having trouble, we're going to organize our neighborhood, make sure they have food when somebody's sick. Well, I, and there's other programs with the church. Yeah, but this is, this is natural. This is your neighborhood. This is the folks you hang out with. And if we start doing that, guess what? We've got other areas. You know, youth group, y'all got, y'all got class and you got youth events. Church has Bible class. All those become those little places to one another, each other. So, this morning, we're not going to extend the invitation in the normal way. In fact, I almost wish we were singing Get Right Church and Let's Go Home. <laughs> but uh, we're going to stay for Bible class because we don't want to get wet anyway. We're going to practice one another in there. But I'm going to ask you as we sing this next song, which is a song commitment. Tony, come on up here. It's a song commitment about loving each other. I want you to respond. And think of one specific way you're going to want another somebody in this church. And if there are folks that have needs, I'm going to ask a couple of elders to go to the back, and they're going to be back there waiting for you if you have needs, and they want to attend to those needs. And if one of you goes back there and you're ready to be baptized, they're going to bring you back up front. We're going to be ready to rejoice. But anybody that has a pressing need on their heart, spiritual, physical, we're going to have some elders in the back. But the rest of us, as we sing this song, we're going to commit to live it. Because Jesus died to make us one. Let's stand and sing. Uh,